0: Almost a decade ago, we saw massive uprisings across the Arab world, the Arab Spring. In country after country, there was a backlash against oppressive regimes and longtime dictators leading to massive street demonstrations. Sudan was an exception. The protests there were limited. But now that's changing. Thousands of Sudanese citizens are taking to the streets to call for their leaders' downfall. Today on the show, we're going to talk about why these protests are happening and why they're happening so much later than what we saw in other parts of the Arab world. This is Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here, as always, with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hello. Before we get to the new protests themselves, we need to understand the backstory of the current Sudanese government. Alex, kick us off.
1: So you need to know about the leader of the country— Omar al-Bashir, he's been one of the region's bad guys for many years. He came into power in 1989 after uh, he led a military coup to overthrow the elected government. And since he's been there, he shored up his power, banning political parties, you know, dissolving the parliament, taking complete control and real strict control of the press. And then actually in 1993 kind of names himself president and the leader.
2: As part of shoring up his power, he formed an alliance with the country's powerful Islamists, and he began to push for the Islamization of the country, instituting Muslim law, Sharia law, and part of this also included embracing radical Islamists uh, from around the world, including a young man some of you may have heard of, a guy named Osama bin Laden. Who? Yeah, that guy. So he actually invited bin Laden into the country, allowed him to set up shop there and basically continue building his organization, the organization that would go on to become al-Qaeda.
0: And in the 90s, the U.S. actually attacked Sudan with the intent under President Bill Clinton of killing Osama bin Laden.
2: Right. Absolutely. And the Sudanese government also were directly involved in supporting and sponsoring the bombers who did the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. So Bashir's government was literally a direct state sponsor of terrorism for a very long time.
0: And the crazy thing is that's not necessarily the worst thing that they've done. You may remember the Darfur genocide, which happened in Sudan in 2003. This is a direct result of the Bashir government's policies.
2: Like you said, in 2003, this black African rebel group in the western region of Sudan called Darfur were basically tired of being oppressed by the Bashir government. So they launched this full-on assault on the government. And to put down the rebellion... Bashir enlists the help of this brutal Arab militia known as the Janjaweed, and horrific violence ensued. And, I mean, we're talking genocide. And Bashir has now actually been indicted by the International Criminal Court on multiple counts of genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity for what he and the Janjaweed militia did in Darfur.
1: Probably nothing's going to happen to him, though, right? Despite the th- hundreds of thousands killed and the millions displaced.
0: Well, as long as he holds on to power. But we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later, right? The, the interesting question, though, is how somebody who is this terrible, like on all of these different metrics, you can describe him as probably one of the world's worst heads of state. Why didn't he get the kind of protests in the early 2010s that you saw in other Arab countries?
2: So a lot of it has to do with the fact that Sudan, during a lot of this time, was also fighting this massive civil war with South Sudan, which is wanting to break away, had been wanting to break away from the north for a very long time. So the northern part of Sudan is like the mostly Muslim, descendants of Arab north, and then the south is the more like black, African, Christian, and animist south. So there's this big divide, and they were fighting this really brutal civil war. And just fairly recently, there was a— peace agreement and the South Sudanese held a referendum, voted to break away and have independence. They are now their own independent country. But all of this was going on. And so if you stop to think, right, like if you're in a country that's fighting this massive civil war, that's the focus. But when that's over, when that's largely been settled, all of a sudden you start to look around and go, "Okay, well, we still have all these other problems that we haven't been paying attention to. And like now that that big fight is over, I don't really like you, the guy who's been leading my country.
1: Yeah and now people are focusing on how the Bashir administration or regime however you want to call it has been going about business and it's going quite poorly in fact there's videos now appearing on on social media of thousands of protesters in this case of the video you're hearing you know, they're coming down the street. They're pro- they're chanting. Uh, this video is taken from a phone up above, but you can just see how large these demonstrations are. How intensely people care, care about pushing back against Bashir, and it shows that there's a palpable feeling. There really is a growing movement, and it could possibly lead to Bashir's ouster.
0: And Sudanese. Citizens are telling international media, some of them at least, why they're out protesting, or at least why some citizens are out protesting. So here's an interview with Al Jazeera uh, with a woman named Mehad Nasr din She runs a youth mentorship program in Sudan.
2: We are protesting against injustice, corruption, dictatorship, mismanagement of our precious resources, blocking of internet services, Inadequate health facilities, unemployment is high, social instability are on the rise. So when people of Adba are going into the street, simply they gave us hope that we can write our own future that we deserve.
0: So what's interesting here is that this is a, a mix of both economic and political grievances. She's talking about the lack of employment opportunities, but also injustice, corruption, dictatorship, political things. Now, it's important to separate those two out because the protests initially started solely as an economic phenomenon.
2: Right, but they're connected part of what we were talking about earlier right when Sudan and Bashir was under all these like economic sanctions from the west over you know being a state sponsor of terror and for issues related to Darfur and kind of just generally being a terrible human being that obviously took an economic toll on the country but he could point to those sanctions and go look it's not my fault right that the economy isn't growing it's it's these you know bad people who are punishing us and blah 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 but now that those have largely been lifted, uh, the U.S. has started working a lot more closely with the government on counterterrorism, things like that.
0: Which uh, is weird given the 90s history.
2: Right. But, you know, they say that, that he's, you know, working on it and things like that uh, so that it's improving. Whether or not that's true is another issue. But they've lifted a lot of these sanctions. So now he's kind of doesn't have that excuse. And so— People are starting to realize, okay, wait a second, it's your shitty corruption, your mismanagement of the economy, the fact that you've been this dictator. Like, we don't have a choice on whether you even get to stay in power. And we're actually tired of the way you're doing things because, yeah, your excuses won't fly anymore, dude.
0: Right, but there's an an immediate cause here, right? Right. It's not just that people randomly decided we're angry enough about the economy to protest, right? Right. This has to do with price hikes, specifically price of bread. Exactly. Exactly.
1: So, yeah, what you need to know is that Sudan has gone through massive inflation lately. Uh, it's a triple or quadruple its size. And it's the government is trying to combat this by raising the prices of goods, which has led to the raise of price of bread, which is a staple of Sudanese uh, gastronomy, f- effectively.
0: Yeah, everybody needs bread.
1: Well, yeah, everybody needs bread, but it's it's a, especially a staple there. So what's happened then is protests started in mid-December, really about the bread price hike. And it's only, it's grown in cities and in towns. And it's just spread everywhere now in the capital, of course, where where Bashir is. And what we're realizing is that has grown into the larger grievance, right, the political grievance that we've talked about. So the sanctions are no longer a scapegoat. We're now seeing that the government's policies are not leading to Sudanese growth. They're leading to, you know, a bad economy. And so now people started about bread. They still care about it. But now it's about, hey, Bashir, you know, what have you done for me lately?
2: We're literally seeing, like, people filling stadiums and, like, the blocks outside Bashir's house, right, to protest. Like, people are pissed off, and it doesn't look like they're going home anytime soon. And part of that also has to do with the fact that Bashir— again, not a great guy, super repressive, has deployed his security forces, including these, basically these ghost troops that they call them, right? Like, they are plainclothes security forces that go around beating the hell out of protesters and clashing with them. There have been major clashes. Some estimates say that as of now, at least like 40 have been killed, uh, around 800 imprisoned. There were several killed, I think, just overnight recently. So, It's getting worse. It's not getting any better. Bashir has closed schools. He's shut down the internet. Uh, He's arresting all these opposition figures and journalists. Like, he's doing the, you know, the dictator playbook. But we don't know what's going to happen, right? Because when you start firing on protesters and killing people, it makes them even more mad a lot of times. Yeah, I was about to
0: say it. We've seen this movie before, right? We've seen mass protests, specifically mass protests in the Arab world, and we've seen governments respond— with repression. But the thing is, there are multiple different possible endings. Right. And we don't know which one it's going to be, right? Like, one possibility is that Bashir is just like, all right, I've had enough. But nobody thinks that's likely to happen. Right. Like the but guy, I mean,
2: to be fair, nobody thought that would happen in Egypt. And then, you know, Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak, stepped down after, like, 30 years in power. That's
0: exactly why it seems unlikely right. to me, right? Because Mubarak stepped down and he's done. He was actually put on trial. Right. Whereas, uh, you in know. In Syria, yeah, for example. Assad fought and Assad is probably held on to power.
2: Yeah, and we ended up having, you know, years-long, horrifically brutal civil war that morphed into this international war. So, yeah, like, it could go many different ways. He could be toppled. I mean, remember, in 1989, he himself took power in a military coup, and there was another, back in the 1960s, Another uprising that completely overthrew the government. So Sudan has a history of popular uprisings that overthrow their governments, and it's entirely likely that this could be another one, or it could be brutally repressed.
1: And on top of that, there have been previous protests in early years about bread, about corruption, but they kind of fizzled out. There wasn't much leadership. There wasn't much organization. This time around, there's a lot of movement within sort of a workers' union. There's not really a leader of this opposition, but there is some organization. some organization. And so this is kind of leading me to the Joker's maxim, which is like this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, which is you're seeing a lot of anger, it's only growing, and Bashir has shown no signs of leaving. And so this could possibly, as you've mentioned, Assad, like, it could grow into a Syria-like situation. That genuinely bothers me right
0: I, I think before we get into, like, the real doomsday scenarios, it's worth thinking about the more subtle gradations of what can happen in a situation like right. this. And, and one of them, I think, one that I've seen some experts suggest, is that you can have— a change of leadership without actual regime change. Yep. And that, in, in this case, would look like a military coup, right? The military comes in and says, we've been running this country for a long time. With your blessing, Bashir, you may have been the dictator in the past, but now you don't get to be dictator anymore. We're going to install some other general in charge of things. And that... Could happen. The question is how good Bashir was at something political scientists call coup-proofing, which is stacking your military with loyalists in order to prevent them and and dividing them amongst themselves, playing power games with them to prevent them from effectively coordinating to launch a coup. I, I just don't know how well Bashir has played that particular game.
2: It's also important to note that the U.S. has previously been supportive, let's say of opposition forces who have been interested in overthrowing Bashir. Uh, The Daily Beast has a really fantastic piece that just came out recently, an exclusive uh, with a guy who was with the CIA for a long time. And before he died recently, he talked to some Daily Beast reporters and told them all about all the times that he met with these opposition figures in Sudan and gave speeches saying, like, nod, nod, wink, wink— If you guys happen to maybe want to change power here, the U.S. would definitely support you. So the U.S. would probably like to see Bashir go, even though, like we said earlier, they're working together a lot more than they used to. There's also another kind of -of middle-of-the-road path I think that's also possible is that Bashir could try to make some sort of accommodations and to go, okay, look, I'll do this, this, and this, and let's try to work. That could potentially pacify the resistance, at least for a while, right? Like, we've seen that happen, too, that they actually respond and say, like, maybe I'll call elections or or whatever. So I, I think it's also possible that this could have a, a less horrific, you know, resolution to it. So it's not all doom and gloom.
0: But for the really bad, bad stuff to happen, right, you need uh, essentially a fracturing inside the military, Or you need the opposition to get access to arms, right? In order for it to become a civil war, a conflict where two sides are fighting over the control of power, you need to have two armed sides. And that, again, depends on what the military decides to do in this case. Are they going to defect to the opposition? Are they going to actively start combating security forces when they engage in repression? And what happens when they do that? Is it is it a coup? Is it a civil war? Is it just the military sitting out and letting protesters come all the time uh, and, and engage in so much disruption that Bashir has no choice but to resign? Right. right. The, the thing that determines the way this goes more than anything else tends to be the behavior of the military.
2: Right. I mean we saw that in Egypt, right? President Sisi right now now leads Egypt – And the military was essentially, like, the real power there. So when Mubarak stepped down, they had elections. Mohammed Morsi was elected, the guy, the Muslim Brotherhood candidate. And then Sisi was like, hey, uh, he's, you know, a military guy. He steps in and goes, yeah, no, we're done with that. We don't like you. I'm taking control. And then proceeded to completely crack down and basically return Egypt to the darkest days of repression. So, again, even if the government does get overthrown, right, even if Bashir does step down— there's no guarantee that what comes next will be better for the people in the streets protesting.
1: Maybe I'm being too doom and gloom about this, but every scenario, I I hope the scenarios you guys have laid out nicely kind of work, you know, work. Uh, But this is a guy who has spent about 80% of his budget on the military. This is a very impressive military unit for for For, what it is. They've been
2: fighting a civil war for decades, right? They're pretty good at this kind of thing at this point.
1: And so if they actually want to go out and slaughter, they could, and they would do, sadly, a... Pretty good job at it. Yeah, in
2: 2013, they killed like almost 200 people in exactly. a protest, right? Yeah,
1: so there's a part of me that almost thinks Bashir is thinking in his in his head. Okay, well, I've had these kinds of protests before. I've survived them, and one of the ways I've survived them has been by killing people. Uh, I've also just survived them by just kind of waiting it out. So it just if. I hate to be doom and gloom, but I I only think this is going to get way worse. Hopefully not a serious situation, but that is the worst case scenario. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility.
0: Uh, I think we're all scarred from the way that a lot of different Arab Spring protests went. Yeah. Uh, Libya was a disaster. Bahrain got repressed. Tunisia is probably the only hopeful case still at this point, right? It's the only one that still turned out relatively well. But that doesn't mean it can't be a Tunisia situation. Right. Right. That doesn't mean it's impossible that Bashir could fall. And I think we should be able to to have a little bit of hope, right, Right. and not just think about Syria, Libya, Egypt, but rather embrace the democratic promise of people going to the street to say, this dictator doesn't speak for us.
2: Right. And it, you know, remains to be seen where America comes down on this too, right? Like, historically, you would think that we would be super supportive of this, but you know, when it comes to the Trump administration, who knows?
1: So if there was anything that gives me hope out of this depressing situation, it was what Zach said, which is good on the Sudanese people for rising up in face of a brutal guy.
2: Absolutely. So we're going to
0: take a break and then we're going to go to Turkey, where we are going to continue our series on music from around the world and talk about a controversial band that's gotten in trouble with the government. Hey, I'm here with Dylan Matthews, who's one of my real-life best friends, and he's here launching a podcast that I'm really excited about. So Dylan is the head of our new Vertical on Effective Altruism, which is about coming up with interesting and smart ways to make the world a better place, and that's what the podcast covers, right? Yeah, it's called Future Perfect, and I think if you listen to Worldly, you're probably interested in sort of big global problems and clever ways to solve them. So we have this really interesting episode on Open Borders, which I know you guys have talked a lot about on Worldly. But really digging into the details, what it would do to get rid of immigration law, what kind of backlash it would face. And every one of our episodes is a big thought
2: experiment like that.
0: And if that sounds like something you'd be into, you should listen to Future Perfect every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. Now we're going to go to our second episode in a series about music from around the world that tells us a lot about the places where it comes from. So today we're going to talk about a band that, to be really clear, we do not endorse necessarily. They're longtime sympathizers of a Marxist terrorist group in Turkey, but the government's reaction to the band over time tells us a lot about what's happening in Turkish society. So back up, Jen, give us like the, the pressies of what's going on with this group. <laughs>
2: It's Uh, (laughs) pray-see. Pray tell. (laughs) So, yeah. So, to back up, this band is called Group Yorum. It's G-R-U-P-Y-O-R-U-M. And they've been around since the 1980s. They have sympathies with a group called DHKPC. Now, this is a Marxist group that is considered a terrorist organization. The group, not the band, the group attacked the U.S. consulate in Istanbul, and they also suicide-bombed a police station. And to be clear— This band does have songs that seem to condone violence.
0: so that sounds super happy and, and and energetic, but what they're saying is, and this is a rough translation, armed with your young rage, we have your rocks in our arms. The fight you taught us is ours. It's growing on our shoulders, growing. And, and this is really a statement that they're willing to go out and fight for the Turkish lower class, the proletariat, the suppressed people. They have sympathies with Kurdish separatists, right? This is... More or less an endorsement of militant struggle, if not outright violence. Now, they've been saying things like this for decades in their lyrics, right? And it's gotten them in trouble in the past. But the past two years have been different. They've seen a concerted crackdown on the group's ability to perform. They've been arrested, a lot of members of them. Like, it's really, really serious crackdown.
1: So have they gotten a lot more militant in recent years? Like, are they— doing more open shows like what's what's going on
0: no yeah, what's the deal no that's the weird thing is not only is the group not different in terms of their lyrics but that is to say group you but the terrorist group that they're a fan of dhkpc has not actually become more powerful recently in fact it's the opposite they've gotten weaker not stronger
2: so then why are they cracking down now if they're like less threatening right like the music is like not even affiliated with a super powerful group what's the deal
0: So first, it's important to understand just how serious this crackdown is. Currently, 11 members of the band are in jail. Two have left and sought asylum in France. In October, the lawyer who is defending group Yoram in trial was jailed himself. Like the lawyer who was trying to defend them was thrown in jail, right? And that's actually an isolated incident. Lawyers around Turkey have been detained for defending people the government doesn't like. And that, Jen, that speaks to the answer to your question, because the answer has nothing to do with group durum itself and everything to do with the nature of Turkey's current government.
2: Right. So Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been cracking down on like all facets of Turkish society, especially since there was a, a coup attempt trying to remove him from power a few years back. And, I mean, we've seen, like, a crackdown on on journalists, on people, you know, members of civil society, government officials, teachers. Like, there's not really, like, a a segment of Turkish society that hasn't been affected. We're talking thousands of people rounded up and put in prison. So I guess, yeah, that would make sense that, like, if you're doing all of that, you might as well get this band who's been advocating violence against the government. Let's go ahead and round those guys up, too, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, so in effect, uh, to maybe put a bow on it, it seems like the band itself, even though it's weaker, hasn't changed so much in its content, but the context around the band has changed. Or maybe Erdogan just doesn't really like awesome piccolo solos.
0: That could it could be it. it. but like He hates the piccolo. <laughs> that, it's a well-known fact about I, Turkey's quasi-dictator. If you take anything away from this conversation.
2: <laughs> also, we literally just made that up. That's not a fact <laughs> yeah. that we're aware of. He's also a very good... Friends with Lindsay Lohan, which is just a weird thing. No, but that's
0: actually true, right?
2: Yes. So, Um,
0: so to conclude, Erdogan... (laughs) Loves
2: Lindsay Lohan.
0: Hates democracy. Who knows about the piccolo? Uh, I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for putting together these wonderful episodes. I want to thank all of you for listening. And, and we really love the emails you all have been sending to our email account, worldly at vox.com. Uh, keep sending them. We really enjoy reading them. We try to reply when we can. Uh, you're all super interesting and thoughtful. Uh, we'd also encourage you to rate, subscribe, review Worldly, wherever you get your podcast Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever it is, please rate and review us. Thanks.
2: Bye.